Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We'll continue this evening with a discussion of the 93rd Anucheta of the Paramatma Sandarbha of Sri Srila Jiva Goswami, dealing with the nature of the Lord's extrinsic potency, and specifically dealing in this section of the Sandarbha with the Lord's interactions with within the material manifestation and an appreciation for while being in the world, he's not of the world. So how is that happening? And in a similar way, being the creator of the world, how's this creation, manifestation, maintenance and destruction coming and going for his material energy and in no way is he directly affected by that manifestation. So what actually is his intrinsic nature and how is his intrinsic nature, his Swarup Shakti, not um, bound uh, to the nature of his external energy, entirely separated potency from his, his very self. So that's, that's the material manifestation. And then we have the Jiva Shakti, which is also independent of him, but seems to be of a similar nature. So we'll continue with our reading. We're in the fifth subsection of the 93rd Anucheta. Jiva Goswami writes as follows, Alternatively, any, any entity at all endowed with the characteristics of a wish-fulfilling tree is equally approachable by everyone whatsoever. If, however, a person neglects to approach such an entity and does not receive its favor, the equally disposed entity is not at fault. Bhagavan's devotees, on the other hand, lovingly seek his favor. Consequently, on seeing Bhagavan's partiality in the form of favoring his devotees, it is understood that even such partiality is the nature of one who is indeed equal to all, samasya. From this, it is to be concluded that this kind of partiality is simply inevitable. Thus, in accordance with this alternative explanation, the word avishsama, swabhava, should be read and explained as visama, swabhava, namely, that he is biased. If you approach a desire tree and it fulfills your desire, then the desire tree is there and anyone can approach it to fulfill their desire. It's not limiting. It's sitting there and if you approach, place your desire uh, before it, then these trees give you whatever you want. This is truly 
not biased. So if we approach the desire tree and it gives us what we want, it's not that the desire tree is biased in one way. It's that some people approach and some people say, well, there are no desire trees. <laughs> You're telling me it's a desire tree. It just looks like any other tree to me. You think I'm going to go ask it for something? What do you think? I'll look like a fool. <laughs> People sometimes, the atheistic class, they also think of God in the same way. Why would I ask God for He doesn't exist. I'm going to go into church and pray, you know, get out on my knees and pray to, to, to God as if he's going to fulfill my desire. Have you tried? No, I don't need to try because God doesn't exist. Well, maybe if you try, you'd find out that there is some reciprocation there. So we can't say that there's some bias on the part of the Lord. Jeeva goes on, similarly in the verse previously quoted, where the example of a tree from the heavenly realm is given, in the statement he loves and serves his devotees, Bhaktan Bajate, there is indeed bias applicable to him. In reality, however, the transrational opulence is in Sri Bhagavan is the primary reason for there not being any contradiction in him. So it's not a contradiction when the Lord reciprocates with his devotee for the very reason that Jeeva's already elaborately explained. That bhakti itself is of his internal nature. And to receive the favor of Krishna in relationship to bhakti does not show a bias on his part. It shows an exchange of of love, of, of bhakti with his devotee. There's, it's, it's part of his internal nature. So it's, it's beyond the modes of material nature. So the bias we're talking about in this section of the Paramatma Sandarbha is when one sees a bias in the way the Lord interacts with his devotees as opposed to everyone else. But his devotees have a special loving relationship with him, which is called bhakti. Bhakti itself is part of the Lord's swarup shakti. As Jeeva's pointed out, it's part of his ladini shakti. Because it is part of his swarup shakti and it's bestowed upon us, it's given to us as a gift. It's not something that's intrinsic in us, bhakti. So this is an important point. Otherwise, and here again, this is another argument to defeat the whole inherency misconception that's sometimes put forward. We see partiality within the within, whenever the Lord descends as an avatar, there is partiality shown to his devotees. Well, if everybody had bhakti, 
then how could that display of partiality manifest in the Lord? Because he's equal to all his devotees. He doesn't discriminate. He reciprocates. So he doesn't discriminate between the the devotee that only gives him a little bit of service or love and the devotee that gives him everything that they've got. He accepts it all, but he reciprocates in kind because that's just his nature. He reciprocates in kind, as anyone would. So that's not a partiality on his part when it comes to his topmost devotees. It's not that he singled Srimati Radharani out as separate from anyone else in reciprocating with her. It's just no one no one gives Krishna more of her their more of themselves through selfless service in love than her. She's the topmost. She's she's the epitome of, of of loving reciprocation with the Lord. She has so much love for the Lord she has to put other push other devotees forward because otherwise Krishna would just want to be with her all the time. And he does. There's some transcendental arrangement there. That other devotees are allowed to reciprocate with Krishna. But her love is so overwhelming that she could actually take and she does actually occupy for the most part well for all parts in all ways if we were to go to Braj there's a display of loving his other well he does love his other devotees but Radha well that's that's special all day it's morning noon and night from the time he wakes up to the time he falls asleep in the kunj at night it's when can I get back with Radharani if they're separated? But he's also reciprocating with everyone as they approach him. So here it's saying transrational opulence of Sri Bhagavan. When we say transrational, it's beyond mundane rationality, but it can be fully understood through the eyes of Shastra, through the eyes of the Bhakti Shastras in particular. It's not that we we see the way the Lord interacts in the world and we immediately say, well, he's showing favoritism to his devotees. Jiva goes on to bring in some of the thoughts of Sridhar Swami, the great commentator on the Bhagavatam. Here, we're talking about transrational opulence beyond our, it's transcendental, a transcendental opulence of the Lord, the way he reciprocates with his devotee. Transrational means that it's above material rationale. While commenting upon the following verse, obeisances to you again and again who foster your devotees. That's from the second canto. Sridhar Swami says, Sukadev now speaks of Bhagavan's trans rational majestic power to explain how his apparent favoritism is not a flaw. The same idea is expressed by Sri Bhishma 
Jiva goes on to explain um, the quote from the first canto, ninth chapter. In him, this is Bhishma Dave talking, in him, who is the self of everyone, who is, has equal vision, who is devoid of duality, and who is altogether free from egotism and vice, there is no partiality whatsoever in regards to the fitness or unfitness of so-called higher or lower actions. Yet, O king, just behold his compassion for those who are exclusively devoted to him. For Sri Krishna himself has come before me just when I'm about to breathe my last. And Bhagavan Krishna himself says, Samoham sarve bhutesu nabe dveshu stinapriya ye bhajante dumam bhakja maite teshu japyaham I am equally disposed to all living beings, and so there is no one whom I despise or favor. But those who worship me with devotion are situated in me, and I too am established in them. Jiva continues, in this way Bhagavan is free from these blemishes. And it has been shown that favoring his devotees is an act of the essence of the intrinsic potency, Shwarup Shakti. So Bhagavan personally performs all those leelas in various avatars only through his intrinsic potency and only to give delight to his devotees. Whereas the sustenance of the cosmos is thereby accomplished of its own accord. This being established, Vidura's question as to how Bhagavan can become involved in, with the gunas and actions of Prakriti, even as a matter of cosmic play, Leela, does not stand. In this regard, the flaw of Bhagavan not being self-satisfied because he performs Leela with the Devas, who are material beings, will be cleared later on in Krishna Sandarbha. By accepting that Bhagavan partially enters the Devas with his potency. So again, even when we come to the Krishna Sandarbha, this same thing is going to be dealt with and in, this, in a similar manner, we have to understand that the Lord is in his interactions are are fully independent and the nature of those interactions is that they are they are performed solely through his his swarup shakti his own internal potency and the outgrowth of that potency in the form of the love that's expressed to him through bhakti so he's 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 i mean let's look at it from a very very simple sense everything's god so from his viewpoint there's no discrimination but so he, that's why these statements, like Bhishma Dave, he can make a statement. There's no partiality on your part. You don't show favors. You don't really care where somebody is materially. 
You're not like in a, you're not sitting there judging and saying, oh, you're pious and you're unpious. From his viewpoint, everybody's just an expansion of himself. He's not looking with the eyes of, of criticism like that. He's not like that judgmental God that some religions put him forth as. He's equally disposed to everyone. I am seated in everyone's heart. For me comes knowledge, remembrance, and forgetfulness. So, I mean, that's a, it's a profound statement if we really look to what Bhishma says here. And vice, there is no partiality whatsoever in regard to the fitness or unfitness of so-called higher or lower actions. I mean, that's God. He's equally disposed. We don't, we want to attribute our, for generally, we want to attribute to God our judgmentalism. We have a, a misrepresentational bias. This is good, this is bad. This person's good, that person's bad. This situation's good, that person's, that situation's bad. And God must think the way I think. No, God's perspective is entirely different. We have to see the way God sees. That's, that's the truth of the matter. That's called purification and, and, and revelation. We can come to that kind of consciousness. So, this, we want, we want to fit God into our little box. Here's my little God, and he judges things the way I judge things, and he sees things the way I see things, and he does things the way I do things, and that's the way it should be. And if you don't see my God that way, then you're not seeing God. Who are you seeing? You're an illusion. You're, you have the wrong religion. You have the wrong guru. You have the wrong uh, Christianism. Krishna's not like that. It's not his nature. And the Bhagavatam is meant to introduce us to his nature. What's the nature of God? And we come to the Bhagavatam and we also, it's also, a, it is the literary incarnation of Krishna. And he's going to reveal himself more and more as we dive deeper and deeper into these kind of insights. But, you have to read deeply and you need good guidance. And we, we, we rely on the guidance of the gurus and the sadhus. We rely on the guidance of the purva acharyas, the prior acharyas, the prior gurus and sadhus, who, out of the kindness of their heart, also left a literary contribution to humanity going forward in time. Like a Jiva Goswami, Vishwanath Chakravarti, Rupa Goswami, Sanatan Goswami, Baladev Vidyabhushan, I mean, Ramanuja, Madhvacharya, Sankaracharya, Sridhar Swami, all, they all left a literary contribution which we can, which we can dive into and benefit from. And what they're all trying to do is bring out this essence of the Bhagavatam so that we can see things in the proper perspective. And as we go deeper and deeper, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing journey. 
You're not going to get to an explanation of even one verse of the Bhagavatam that you fully, absolutely have covered every aspect of what's being presented there. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, did I give you what uh, 64 explanations? I don't know what I said. Maybe we can discuss it again, see what comes out again, because it is self-manifesting itself. The Bhagavatam itself is self-manifesting. It's not just some some it it itself reciprocates as we surrender unto it and its presentation. Not that we project this is what the Bhagavad this is what it means here. Prabhu, I'm telling you, this is what it means. Who would have that kind of a conception about any verse of the Bhagavatam when the Acharyas come out with hundreds of meanings and present them in hundreds of unique and wonderful ways that are all nourishing. And we're going to say, you know what Krishna means here? I'll tell you what he means here. I'll tell you, if that's the way you are trying to present the Bhagavatam, then that's not the best way to try to present the Bhagavatam. We're, we are, we're, we're all students, and we're never going to be complete masters. Because what do we find in the character of the masters? The more they master the, the, the mysteries of the Bhagavatam, the more they realize they haven't mastered anything. They, have, they, haven't, even, they haven't even scratched the surface of what the Bhagavatam is trying to relate. But in recognizing that fact, they're the true... They're the true acharyas, the true masters. They're truly bringing out the essence. They can bring out so much essence. Doesn't mean they're going to bring out all the essence. They can bring out enough essence to get us back home, back to Godhead. Mm-hmm. That's that's good enough for us. So, Krishna is not seeing higher or lower. So this, his so-called showing of favor is simply a manifestation of Swarup Shakti. So Jiva's brought that out. And the same thing in relationship with, which Jiva ends this sub-part of the Anucheta with, he says the following, in this regard, the fall of flaw of Bhagavan not being self-satisfied is because he performs the leelas with the devas, who are material beings, will be cleared later on. But it's the same flaw of consciousness that, that the Lord can be wrapped up in his gunas. By accepting that Bhagavan's partially enters the devas with his potency. Well, we couldn't just leave it at that. We'll get to the Krishna Sandarbha in a while, but what exactly does that Anucheta say from the Krishna Sandarbha?
the word, I'm just reading a small, this is a large annotator from the Krishna Siddhartha, I'm just reading a little bit of it. The word Pumsa, instrumental of Puman, means by the original Purusha, Adi Purushena, or in other words, by Sri Krishna, who is Swayam Bhagavad. The word Amsai, accompanied by his partial expansions, means you should take birth along with Krishna's associates, Parsadas, such as Sridam Sudam, Srimad Uddhava, and Satyaki, who are as parts in relation to him. For the most part, they, the people among the cowherds and the yadus, are described precisely in this manner as Devas, Parsadas. So this, of course, will be unpacked fully, but the point is, Krishna comes with his entourage. Well, his entourage are all transcendental, and they are all of his nature. So you can look at them all as his expansions. Amsas is what is the word used here. So then... In this Anacheda from the Krishna Sandarbha, the following verse is quoted from the 10th canto. This is in the first chapter. Nanda and all the cowherd men residing in Vraj, the wives of the cowherd men, Vasudev and the Vrishnis, Devaki and the Yadava women, the kinsmen, relatives, and friends of both Nanda and Vasudev, and even those in the service of Kamsa are predominantly Devas. Devata Praya, i.e. eternal associates, Nitya Parsadas. So it'll be interesting to go there and see how this is all unpacked, but they're all, they're all like his, his, they're like parts of him. So to say that he's showing a favoritism to all the people that he interacts with when he comes as Swayam Bhagavan Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam in the midday of Brahma's days, every day, 365 days of Brahma's year, he gets to see Krishna around noon. It's nice for him. And then the next day comes and there's Krishna again. Now from our viewpoint, it's like, wow, that's a long, long time. You know, from from Brahma's waking up from the, in the lotus, you know, all the way through before he takes rest again in the Garbodak Ocean. And then he wakes up again and the whole creation starts again. At the beginning, Swayambhuva, Manu. So we look at the Bhagavatam, we're looking at just little parts of Brahma's day. We're looking at one day of Brahma. But at noon, every day, Krishna comes. Every day, day in and day out. Year in, year out, for a hundred years. And then, Brahma, in most instances, goes to Vaikuntha with everybody that's in his, in the upper planetary systems above the 14 planetary systems. So, Sometimes they don't. Sometimes he doesn't. What? Sometimes Brahma doesn't. Sometimes Brahma isn't isn't a devotee. So he. 
Yes. Sometimes he's not a devotee, that ghost of Aikuntha. Vishwanath brings that out in his uh, third canto. Anyway, that's a different discussion than what we're at here. So the commentary here is extremely long, and I would just highlight a little bit of it. Uh, and it'll be by way of uh, review of what was in the Anacheda. This is our third discussion of this one sub-part. Um, so really what Jiva's giving us is the psychology in one part of the Anacheda, he put, brought forth the psychology of compassion. So compassion comes from empathy. And empathy comes from experience. So without experience, there's really no deep empathy or, and thus there is no compassion. Well, Krishna doesn't have our experiences. He has his own existence and it's separate from our existence within the material realm. We can make it pretty close to having a, a more substantial existence even independent of the ingress of his Swarup Shakti. His Swarup Shakti is coming again and again. Yada, Yadahi, Dharmasya. I mean, Krishna's appearing every Yuga, Yuga avatars, Manvantaras, he's coming as, uh, Leela avatars. So he's coming again and again. In fact, it also may, he comes in every species of life. It's not that he's making, he's, he's not availing himself to all the jivas that are within a material universe. It's like he's unlimitedly saying, here, I'm here, come see me, learn about spiritual life. And for the most part, we're, we're indifferent, unfortunately. So we, but we, we can't really, again, fault Krishna. It's not that he's not planting his desire trees throughout the universe repeatedly where we can approach him and learn what to speak of his devotees. When he comes, how many devotees does he bring with him who really are fully and absolutely dedicated to him? I mean, if we, we could hardly even count the school teachers for his children. Millions of school teachers in Dwarka, just to, for Krishna's offspring to, and all the other offspring of the, of the Yadus. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, when you're talking about you know, not having real compassion because of not having experience, so the Paramatma feature of Krishna is in the heart of any living entity as a witness. Mm -hmm. So it's like if I witness some horrible atrocity going on outside. Right, so what's explained here is the psychology of compassion is related to an impression upon the chitta. The chitta 
is material compassion the way we conceive of compassion is based upon that impression. That impression is based upon a direct experience that one could have of misery or suffering. Krishna, even sitting in the heart, does not have that because that would mean he would be following under the modes of material nature and and the, that material jurisdiction. That's the point being made here. doesn't mean that he's not observing. It's just his observance doesn't make him... I mean, yeah. if you watch somebody get hit by a car, you don't have... It's not the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what it feels like if I haven't been hit by a car, but I can see that... Oh. That's why in the verse, and what Jiva said there, he can have some idea. Okay. All right, but not not the full... Because he's not under the modes. And we also have to look to that a little deeper too, don't we? Because... Well, how, do, how much are you under the modes? You're getting hit by a car and... And a karmi being hit by a car is going to be two different things. As a devotee, you're going to scream Krishna. And, and I mean, it's going to be the experience and the misery is not going to be the same according to the degree to which one is under the modes of material nature, even from, from ignorance to goodness. What to speak of when you have somebody that actually has an ingress of bhakti, no matter how, how deep it is, whether it be in a preliminary stage or a very developed stage, the experience is going to be entirely different. What to speak of the Jivan Mukta? So, I mean, I, there were no cars around when, when Sukadeva Goswami left home. But the difference between Sukadeva Goswami getting hit by a car and just anyone else in that period, it, it's entirely different. The experience of it is different according to the, to the mentality course here again we're talking mind you know so you understand what I'm saying yeah. we can't conceive of as I tried to point out in the last discussion we can't even conceive of the nature and the awareness and the experience of the of the prem bhakta or even the bhava bhakta how did I mean what is their existence like so in a similar way, as we cannot approach Prem Bhakti except gradually through a stage of purification, but there are people that are there and we can have some glimpse. So we can know that it exists. We can know something of its nature, but the overwhelming love that someone feels for Krishna unconditionally without any any strings attached? I mean, we're we're here and we're we're trying to become selfless, and we listen and hear about the value of selfless devotion. But I mean, really, I want to get out of this place. So that's playing a part. Now, we're told by acharyas like Avishwanath Chakravarti that. At a certain point, you're going to advance to the point, not an amna janamna sundarim kavitram vajagadishikama. 
I don't care for wealth or followers of beautiful women or or if I have to be bored a hundred times. Well, I care. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. I care at this stage. I'm a conditioned living entity. I can sit here and we can chant three times a week these prayers of Shri Shaitanya and pray that we can enter into the mystery of them. But that stage is realized at the stage of, of Ruchi. As Bhaktivinoda Thakur brought out, Ruchi brings us to that stage. What's happening at Ruchi? You're tasting spiritual enjoyment through your practice ever increasingly. So at Ruchi, you can sing out, Nudinum, Nudinum. Why? Because you're in Ruchi. You're like really tasting nectar every time you chant the holy name, every time you, whatever action you do in devotional practice is unlimitedly enjoyable and becoming ever more so at every moment until it's overtaken with a desire, a specific desire starts to manifest and Krishna's form a form of Krishna or a service to Krishna begins to take over the joyfulness of your of your bhakti. Then it's like, yeah, but I haven't even, I'm started. I like everything in devotional service, but I really like meditating on the way a particular gopa interacts with Krishna. When I hear those leelas, those really give so that's it's a sakti. A sakti. Now we're starting to to really develop some specificity in our devotional practice. A sakti. Now I might want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. And that's what Lord Chaitanya is singing now, right? I Nanda Tanuja Kinkaram, let me be there. In that house. So, if we can't conceive of these things, what to speak of? You want Krishna to have the same compassion you have? It's not. He's not affected the way we are about hitting being hit by a car. If he doesn't care what the hell you do, then. Like, like Bhishma just says, he's not making a discrimination between the high, a higher and a lower. He sees everyone as his part and parcel equally, but those people that come to him, he's like a desire tree. Yes, love is great. In fact, it's unlimitedly great and just keep it coming. The more you give me love, the more I'll give you love back. We can go on like this forever. That's what he's saying. The empathy thing, yeah, it's a little bit of a of a quagmire. Jeeva's tried to show us a little bit, given us a little glimpse of it. But we have to see there's a great distinction between the Lord's the Lord's existence and ours. About the between the Lord's experience and ours, and between our experience and those better lovers of the Lord as they advance through the stages. We're like, wow, when will that day be mine? When there'll be some, well, 
Anartha Nivriti. If I could just get rid of the Anarthas, that would be a good step in the right direction. <laughs> Nista, Ruchi, Asakti, Bhava, Prem. Then the different stages of Prem. I mean, there's a lot ahead. <laughs> you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> just let it come. Let's be realistic about where we are and stick with it and stay in good association and everything all this is going to come in due course of time so yes plain and pleasure pleasure or modifications of the chitta which is an evolute of prakriti this whole section is about the fact that the lord is not under the gunas and even when it appears like he is and when it appears like he's showing partiality you have to see all that through the eyes of the Bhagavatam, through the eyes of Scripture. He knows such suffering through the experience of others, but not directly. So it's not that he doesn't know, but he has no direct knowing, because he has no direct involvement in his ex extrinsic energy. He doesn't have a material body. The material body is what is suffering. So he's not impelled by compassion. If he is impelled, impelled by any kind of compassion, that compassion is a compassion related to bhakti, not to material circumstance, is the point being made. If Bhagavan were able to experience material misery, if he could, then out of compassion he would have delivered everyone from the material world at the mere sight of their suffering. But this has not happened, and this proves that he is immune to the experience of material misery. So one could ask, naturally, well, so you're saying God doesn't have a material body, so he doesn't experience material misery. All right. What about his devotees? He seems to, to, to relate to their misery. So Jiva explains that as follows. To this, Sri Jiva Goswami replies that the pain and pleasure of a devotee are not material. Rather, they are both manifestations of bhakti, the intrinsic potency of Bhagavan. A devotee feels happy only by giving pleasure to Bhagavan. And his devotees and feels morose if unable to do so. His pain and pleasure are not independent of Bhagavan. Therefore, Bhagavan's experience experiences only his intrinsic potency when realizing the pain and pleasure of his devotees. So again, it gets back to the fact that his internal potency is the facilitator for all his actions. I was I've been thinking about this a lot, and there's another thing that that you can you can bring into this picture, is there is a profound, an overwhelming love, on the part of Krishna's devotees for Krishna. Now, how deep is that love? How profound is that? When we talk to keeping Krishna free of misery. Well, let's look to the topmost lovers of Krishna. How deep is that love? What are they meditating on when Krishna goes out to herd the cows? 
are his feet going to get pricked? Are the stones going to hurt? I mean, have you seen how soft I felt his feet? They're so soft and gentle. And, and you know, I just push a little with my finger and they change colors. And it's, it's magical. And he's going to be walking through the woods? Mother Yasoda telling all the other cowherd boys, you have to protect him on all sides. You stand on this left, right, front, back, all, all directions. How much is that love? To be thinking about your beloved with that kind of a sentiment. Now we know Krishna is such a sankalpa. He can fulfill his own desires. Well, what about fulfilling the desires of his devotees? And what about the fulfillment of their desires, desires in relationship to him? Which is a, a manifestation of their bhakti. Now, Maya won't even, Mahamaya, the material Maya, will not even present herself before Krishna. She won't even come before him. Imagine that. Now, Yoga Maya, Yoga Maya facilitates everything, looks out for every specific detail in relationship to the Lord's Leela. So when he advents in the material world, who's arranging everything? She's arranging everything. She's arranging who gets to go this time, who gets to stay back. I mean, you know, she's got it all covered. She's arranging all of these leelas, all, the, all of these manifestations. I mean, we read in the Bhagavatam, Krishna comes and this, but who's working behind the scenes? First of all, who came first? Who arranged the, the whole atmosphere? So it's all, it's all specifically arranged for Krishna's ultimate pleasure. Do you think any one of these devotees who's involved in the Leela of Krishna is going to let him experience any material, anything material in any, under any circumstance? They couldn't take it. Krishna suffering? Oh my gosh. Maya won't even stand before him because there's the prospect of him thinking about... It's another way to, to understand the deep... We're hearing here from Jiva that Krishna's, even in the demigods, they're coming and it appears like he's working with, he's living with demigods. They're, they're in the material society. And Jiva's saying, well, if we look deeply and read what's in the Bhagavatam, no, it's actually, he's entered into all of them. If he's not, if they're not a direct expansion for his pleasure, the Parsa does, then what are, they're fully empowered by him. And if they're not fully empowered by him directly, they're fully empowered by his Shakti through the devotees. So the Sarup Shakti has entered them to the point that they're, they're his topmost devotees and they're allowed to participate in his Leela. Or they're half devotees, as Vishwanath kind of has said, half devotees, the demigods. They've got a material responsibility, but they're, they're for Krishna. All this is just to bring us into this deeper understanding. What's God really like? You know, what's, what, what's God all about? 
and and you know it's as I said it's 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 exciting to to see the way the acharyas can bring out these these things. So Bhagavan experiences only his intrinsic potency. That's it. He experiences only his intrinsic potency. And his realization, if he has any experience of pain and pleasure, it's the pain and pleasure of his devotees in relationship to their love for him. Either they're with him and they're loving him or they're in separation. It's giving them some inconvenience and that's the pain he's feeling. And there's compassion. Now we're talking real compassion. All my devotee is separated. Feeling like this. So in the next discussion, we will come to the very last subsection of this 93rd Anucheta. And this subsection will deal with... uh, a deeper understanding of Krishna's interaction with those that are in opposition to his devotees or himself, the Asuras. How does he relate with them? And we see that he relates in a very unique manner. All right, thank you so much for your association.